Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use, murder, rape, miscarriage, sexuality, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. At 7.45 p.m. on February 1st, 1922, silent film director William Desmond Taylor walked his guest, actress Mabel Normand, to her car outside his swanky Alvarado Court bungalow. It was uncharacteristically chilly for Los Angeles, so they didn't linger long. Despite prohibition, the two had spent the past 45 minutes sharing orange blossom gin cocktails while discussing risque philosophers Freud and Nietzsche. Taylor promised to call her that evening, but Mabel insisted she wouldn't be taking calls once she retired after dinner. The two blew kisses at each other until Mabel was out of sight. Taylor went back inside. Across the street, Taylor's neighbor, Faith McLean, was cooking dinner. She saw a stranger enter Taylor's house around 7.45 p.m., but thought nothing of it. Her husband came home, and she went back to making dinner. Around 8 p.m., the McLeans and several other neighbors heard a single loud crack from the alley, like a car backfiring. It wasn't until the next morning that they realized it had been a gunshot. William Desmond Taylor had been murdered. 100 years later, the mystery of his death is still unsolved. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. This week, we'll take a look at the unsolved murder of rising Hollywood silent film director William Desmond Taylor in February of 1922. 
Following close behind other Hollywood scandals, his murder fueled the twisted imaginations of the American public and the film industry's increasing need to cover up its mounting scandals. More conservative audiences called for protests, boycotts, and even full censorship of the film industry as case after case of bootleg booze, drug addiction, and blackmail surfaced. Meanwhile, newspapers ate up the bleak narratives coming out of Hollywood, wildly embellishing details and even fabricating information while studios struggled to keep these PR disasters contained. America's obsession with the sensationalized inner workings of Hollywood had begun. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Thursday, February 2nd, 1922. Around 7.30 a.m., Henry Peavy arrived per usual at the Taylor household. He was Taylor's cook and valet. Peavy unlocked the front door to bring in the paper and some medicine he'd picked up for Taylor's nervous stomach. He hesitated in the doorway. The downstairs lights were all on, but Taylor was nowhere to be seen. Thinking Taylor had overslept, Peavy set down his things and went upstairs to wake him. Instead, Taylor was lying dead on his back on the floor of his office. Peavy later told the coroner, The first thing I saw was his feet. I looked at his feet a few minutes and said, Mr. Taylor. He never moved. I stepped a little further in the door and seen his face and turned and ran out and hollered, Mr. Taylor's dead. Help, help, Mr. Taylor's dead. William Desmond Taylor was one of the biggest directors in Hollywood. With 59 films in his portfolio, he worked with the biggest rising stars of the day and was beloved by colleagues. Many hailed him as a genius, and as such, he was elected to serve three terms as president of the Motion Picture Association. But now, he lay dead on the floor. PV ran all the way out to the courtyard shared between the eight Alvarado court bungalows, The image of Taylor's dead body burned into his mind. He gathered three neighbors, E.C. Jesserin, who owned and managed Alvarado Court, and residents Charles Main and Douglas McLean. The four returned to Taylor's study. Mr. Taylor was sprawled on his back, still fully clothed as was his habit, in a fine suit complete with a vest, collar, coat, and tie. His eyes were glassy, and there was crusted blood on his mouth. More blood was pooled beneath him. From the looks of it, there had been no struggle. Meanwhile, Taylor's driver, Howard Fellows, arrived to take his boss to work. Fellows was absolutely stunned by the news. He had thought something was up the night before when around 8.15, he dropped off the car and rung the doorbell to give back the keys as instructed. The lights were on, but there was no response. He'd gone home and tried to phone, but to no avail. He didn't know it, 
but Taylor was already dead. After hearing about the murder, Fellows immediately called his brother Harry, who was high up at Paramount. He was also close with Taylor and knew that some of his personal dealings put him at risk of a post-mortem scandal, which, by extension, put Paramount at risk. Harry alerted Paramount's general manager, Charles Eiton, who sprung into action. Eiton instructed him to go to the home of a colleague named Julia Crawford Ivers. Julia was one of Taylor's closest associates and Paramount's lead scenario writer. She, too, knew what was at stake. Julia and Harry hurried to Taylor's house to comb through and remove any items that could lead to a scandal. Their chief targets were liquor and love letters. Less than 20 minutes later, the police arrived at 7.58 a.m. Julia pulled away just moments before Detective Sergeant Thomas H. Ziegler pulled in. Ziegler immediately cleared the crime scene and began taking statements, which was normal procedure. What happened next was far from normal. An unknown doctor appeared, claiming to be treating a patient nearby. He asked to examine the body, and without waiting for police to answer, began to turn it over. Ziegler emphatically stopped him, citing protocol requiring they wait for the coroner. This did not entirely deter the mysterious doctor, however. The man announced that the death appeared to be a hemorrhage of the stomach. Ziegler wrote natural causes on his papers, which was very strange. The coroner was the only person who was supposed to give the legal cause of death. Even stranger, the doctor disappeared before Ziegler realized no one had gotten his name. This odd episode has led historians to speculate that the doctor may have been part of a cover-up by the studios, and possibly even police. The case got weirder when Eiton, Paramount's general manager, showed up a few minutes later. Ziegler was apparently dazzled by such an important motion picture executive and allowed Eiton leeway that a normal crime scene would forbid. As Ziegler continued to take statements from residents, he knowingly let Eiton go to Taylor's body with no accompaniment. When Eiton returned, he was not questioned on whether he had touched or moved anything. And he absolutely had, pocketing a few letters Julia had missed. When asked about the removal of the letters later on in the investigation, Eiton insisted, I simply wanted to protect innocent parties, including Taylor, from scandal. He gave no further details. The coroner, William McDonald, arrived at 8.40 a.m. In further breach of protocol, the coroner allowed Eiton to help turn over the body. There was a single bullet wound, expertly aimed to enter through the back of the chest cavity and lodge in the neck. This wasn't just a random shot. It was a skilled assassination. The neighbors were shocked, but it was the McLeans who recalled the loud crack from the night before around 8 o'clock, realizing it had been a gunshot. But Faith McLean and her maid Christine had actually seen the murderer. Christine had seen him around 7.15 p.m. milling about in the alley. She'd kept an eye out, expecting car theft. The man would walk around a bit, then stand very still, 
then walk again all around Taylor's house. At 8 p.m., the household heard a large crack. At the time, Christine had insisted it was a gunshot. Faith disagreed, but opened the door to look. Her house opened kitty corner to Taylor's front porch. Faith reported seeing a figure in the doorway. He turned and looked right at her, then went back inside the house briefly, presumably to speak to Mr. Taylor. A few minutes later, Faith watched him walk down the front steps and off into the alley. He was never seen again. Faith hadn't thought much of it. Mr. Taylor was a movie director with many visitors, and it wasn't any of her business. As a result, she hadn't gotten a good look at the man. She wasn't even entirely sure the person had been male, but she did remember that they were dressed like a motion picture burglar. This was all the information police had to go on as they began their investigation. There were three immediate suspects. Henry Peavy, Taylor's current cook and valet, Edward Sands, Taylor's previous cook and valet, and Dennis Tanner, Taylor's missing brother. Peavy was suspected largely due to his easy access to Taylor and having been the person to find Taylor's body. However, this theory was quickly dismissed. Peavy had worked for Taylor with no previous problems and was clearly shaken up by the incident. He had no reason to harm Taylor. In fact, he suffered from the loss personally. Just three days before the murder, Peavy, who was a gay black man, had been arrested and charged for indecent exposure while out on a date. Taylor had stood up for Peavy, paying his bond and agreeing to appear in court to defend Peavy in the coming month. The murder prevented that appearance and took away Peavy's employment. With nothing to gain from Taylor's murder, police dismissed Peavy as a suspect. The second suspect was the most promising. Edward Sands had been Taylor's cook and chauffeur before Peavy. While Taylor was overseas in England the previous summer, Sands had run off with several of Taylor's valuable possessions and large sums of money. Besides stealing a blank check with Taylor's signature and cashing it for $5,000, or over $60,000 today with inflation considered, he had also forged a series of smaller checks. During the investigation, Peavy reported that Taylor had been working on tax paperwork related to the stolen money on the night of the murder. In fact, there was even a check Sands had forged on the desk the night he died. Taylor had confided in Peavy that the forgery was so good, he himself couldn't tell the real and fake checks apart. Taylor had also seen his accountant the day before in hopes of sorting out the mess, which had been going on for a little over six months. Sands could have seen the writing on the wall and murdered Taylor to avoid the fraud, theft, and perjury charges that were surely on the way. But Sands had just reached out to Taylor at Christmas time a few months before, returning one of Taylor's stolen possessions and apologizing for some of the hardship he'd caused. There was no indication he wanted Taylor dead. Taylor also didn't seem particularly angry with Sands, just disappointed and tired. This isn't to say Sands didn't do it, and investigators still believed Sands to be a possible culprit. 
However, Sands also had a strong motivation not to kill Taylor. With Taylor dead, Sands couldn't keep forging checks from him. There's also no evidence that Taylor had sent anyone to track Sands down prior to the murder. He may not even have known Taylor was on to him. The final suspect was the hardest to prove or disprove. William's younger brother, Dennis, was an elusive figure who was hard to track down. The last time he had been seen definitively was on a film set with Taylor in 1914, almost a decade before. However, since almost no one Taylor worked with had met Dennis, no one could give a description of the younger man. Furthermore, no one had seen Dennis since the film. If Dennis were the killer, we'll never know what his motivation was or where he went afterwards. All three initial suspects were dead ends, which left police in a maze, unsure of where to turn. And the investigators were right where Paramount Pictures wanted them. In a moment, a fuller picture emerges. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. The 1922 murder of William Desmond Taylor was, to say the least, strange. None of the police's three initial leads had panned out, and no new leads emerged. Taylor was an upstanding citizen who lived in a nice neighborhood. All of his colleagues had nothing but good things to say about him. Yet Eiton and the rest of the Paramount crew had felt it essential to shield Taylor from scandal. Someone had clearly wanted Taylor dead, and his friends clearly knew there was potential for media disaster. This fear was not unfounded. Paramount was coming off the tails of two scandals in the past six months, both of which had decreased ticket sales and ruined two of their best performers' careers. The first case was Fatty Arbuckle's arrest for the rape of Virginia Rappé in September of 1921. While Arbuckle was eventually acquitted, the case drummed up enormous press coverage that resulted in major protests. It didn't help that he was also a well-known alcoholic, smack in the middle of prohibition. 
most people chose to boycott or write editorial pieces against Arbuckle's films. But in one theater in Wyoming, patrons actually shot bullets at a screen playing an Arbuckle movie. This case was even muddier because it was a third party who provided the details of the rape. In fact, it came out years later that the entire case had framed Arbuckle to get money out of him. But that didn't matter to the papers. The sensational case sold stories, so journalists weren't above exaggerating. Prior to the incident, Arbuckle had been the highest paid man in Hollywood. Now, he was legally barred from working under his name. Even after changing his stage name, he never rose to a fraction of his former success. The Arbuckle case also gave conservative opposition a reason to push for legal policy to end the film industry. As Fatty Arbuckle had proven, rumors, even without evidence to back them up, can be extremely damaging for a public figure, for Paramount, and for the motion picture industry as a whole. It was this kind of backlash that Eitan was hoping to prevent when he arrived to scandal-proof Taylor's murder scene. Short on the heels of the Arbuckle case was the Wallace-Reed scandal in January of 1922, just a month before Taylor's murder. Reed was a beloved all-American actor, but he had a problem no one realized had gotten so serious. He was a morphine addict. This was not entirely Reed's fault. He'd sustained wounds in a terrible train crash, and his doctors had prescribed the painkillers. Since the opiates allowed Reed to act at full capacity during the recovery, the studios looked the other way. But the drugs were ravaging his body. He collapsed on set in the early weeks of 1922 and was rushed to the hospital. When asked about that day, a colleague recalled, he sort of fumbled about and bumped into a chair and then just sat down on the floor and started to cry. They put him in a chair and he just keeled over. They sent for an ambulance and sent him to the hospital. Reed would die in a sanitarium from drug complications a year later. But the damage to his reputation and to Paramount was done long before that. With the Taylor case breaking just weeks after Reed's collapse, it's unsurprising that the studio wanted to prevent another scandal, especially one involving one of their most famous and prolific filmmakers. The question was, what was Paramount hoping to cover up? Run-of-the-mill offenses like bootleg liquor and a few affairs? Or was there something bigger and darker brewing? Drugs? an affair with a minor, potential jealous partners, a crazed stage mother, and cold-blooded murder were all on the table. Granted, Hollywood in 1922 was unfortunately no stranger to death. Paramount had lost two of its most famous performers in just the last six months. But premeditated murder was new, and as far as anyone could tell, William Desmond Taylor was an unlikely target. Taylor was well-liked by colleagues at the studio and consistently described as a gentlemanly and hard-working man. And yet, the studio had rushed over to erase any possible traces of scandal. But Taylor certainly wasn't without his secrets. For one thing, William Desmond Taylor wasn't even his real name. He was born William Cunningham Dean Tanner 
on April 26, 1872, on his family's estate in Ireland. The family was quite well-to-do, boasting numerous distinguished doctors, architects, and military personnel. William grew up with a gentleman's education and manners, traits that friends appreciated and commented on even after his death. Unfortunately for William, his domineering father was absolutely disgusted by his son's early passion for theater, likely because it was associated with being poor, effeminate, and liberal. He forbid any child of his to be on stage. As a result, William broke with his father at the age of 18. From here, William's story gets harder to track. William departed to the United States shortly after leaving his family. Multiple reports from previous co-workers put him as a waiter in Kansas City, Missouri in 1892. No one knows what he did for the two years following. He returned to the stage in New York in 1894, holding odd jobs as a common laborer, railroad hand, and waiter along the way to make ends meet. He even tried his hand at professional gambling. During this time, his family inconsistently sent him money to keep him afloat, but it wasn't always dependable. In 1901, William married an affluent woman from New York City, Ethel May Hamilton. His new bride had fine tastes, and it soon became clear he would need more stable income, especially after the happy couple welcomed their first baby into the world the following year. They named her Ethel Daisy Dean Tanner. Suddenly needing to support a child and a wife with fine tastes, William took a break from the stage to work in his wife's uncle's antique furniture store. By all accounts, William was excellent at his work and very committed. But William's behavior grew increasingly odd. Before the wedding, William had abruptly changed his name to Pete Tanner, even signing his daughter's birth certificate with this name. Questions arose as to why William, now Pete, needed a new name. It might have been because he wanted to distance himself from his family overseas, or because he wanted to separate himself from the stage. But it could have been something more sinister as well. After a few years of successful work, rumors began that some of the antiques in his in-law's shop weren't authentic and that William was shaving money off the top. His wife also reported that during this time, William took to drinking heavily, especially during increasingly long bouts of melancholy. His wife and daughter reported that William had bad memory problems, sometimes blocking out days, weeks, or even months. They both maintained that he had trouble recalling the entirety of 1908. It's unclear if William was trying to hide unsavory secrets in his life, or if he was suffering from alcoholism or mental illness. No matter the cause, something was afoot. And seven years into his marriage, William couldn't take it anymore. According to his wife, one day in 1908, William went to lunch and never returned, with no explanation to her or their six-year-old daughter. He simply vanished. Ethel was awarded a legal divorce and sole custody of their daughter in 1912 due to his prolonged absence. After leaving, 36-year-old William changed his name again, this time 
to William Desmond Taylor. It's unclear if he was trying to distance himself from his abandoned wife and child, or if he just wanted a fresh stage name. Those who knew Taylor in his early film days said he was quite open about his name change, never trying to hide it, but also never explaining it. Taylor soon began acting again in the film capital of 1912, New Jersey. During this time, he was in a constant state of poverty, yet was always dressed impeccably, a gentlemanly trait he'd kept from his Irish family that also helped him stand out in a crowd and land roles. Taylor preferred the stage, but would take any role he would get, which led to small appearances in motion pictures. By 1913, he'd moved to San Francisco. A motion picture director saw him acting in a stage play and offered him a gig down in Los Angeles. In his heart, Taylor still wanted to be a stage actor, but he knew there was a lot more money in film. Taylor decided that the money was worth the artistic compromise. He moved to Los Angeles and hit the ground running, acting in almost 30 pictures over the next few years. At the time, motion picture lengths had not been standardized and were instead measured in reels. Each reel was about 15 minutes. Most of Taylor's films were two, three, or occasionally six reelers. This put his average film runtime between 30 and 90 minutes, more akin to television episodes today than full-length feature films. Still, 30 was an enormous number for such a short period of time. Taylor was finding success in the movies. It was during this time he met the woman who would become his second fiancée, Neva Gerber. Taylor was officially divorced, so there was no legal issue on his end, but Gerber was technically still married, so they never set a wedding date. But Gerber's marital status wasn't the only thing that would pull the couple apart. Because Taylor was a citizen of the UK, not the US, he was called away to serve in World War I in 1916. The war was hard on Taylor. Both his mother and uncle died in bombings, and he was known to lament the death of a daughter as well. It's not clear who Taylor was referring to. Ethel May was still safe in New York, and there are no legal documents referring to a second daughter. She may have been a secret child from his London days, or perhaps he assumed that his ex-wife and Ethel May would reject him if he ever reached out, and as such, considered his daughter dead to him. Around this time, Taylor and Gerber ended their now five-year engagement. Gerber had never gotten that divorce, and Taylor was melancholic after the war. The ending was mutual and pleasant, but it appears that Gerber may have been concerned about Taylor's darkening moods. Right around the same time, Taylor's first wife and daughter happened to attend the movies one day. Completely taken by surprise, Hamilton proclaimed to her daughter that the leading man was Ethel May's missing father. The two traveled to Los Angeles to see Taylor, who apparently greeted them with open arms and began a consistent correspondence with his daughter. Surprisingly, Hamilton and Ethel May didn't seem to harbor any ill will toward Taylor for leaving. They were happy that he was fulfilled and succeeding. Meanwhile, Taylor was succeeding professionally. 
After the war, he had been offered a job directing instead of acting. While acting was his true passion, directing made a lot more money. And he was good at it. He directed just shy of 60 silent films, which was twice as many as he'd acted in. Several were major hits. He started forming key relationships with other directors, producers, and film professionals, including Julia Crawford Ivers, Charles Eiten, and the Peavy brothers. And in 1919, he met the two women who would be dragged into a scandal after his death, Mary Miles Minter and Mabel Normand. Mary Miles Minter was a 16-year-old blonde-haired beauty and child star. Taylor, who was in his 40s, was old enough to be Mary's father. In fact, she and his daughter were born the same year. That didn't stop Mary from falling head over heels in love with him. Mary had been performing nonstop since she was six, and her incredibly controlling mother prevented her from having personal relationships. Mary felt that people only saw her as a tool to make their films or make money. So when Taylor treated her like a human and took an interest in mentoring her, she was smitten. Despite the age gap, she made it her mission to marry him. Mary's intense behavior concerned colleagues who counseled Taylor to keep his distance to prevent accusations of a scandal. Taylor initially ignored them, insisting he was only a mentor figure to this lost girl. But he eventually backed out when Mary began reading his behavior as romantic. Maybe that's why Eiton removed Mary's love letters from Taylor's desk the morning after the murder. Mary had been slow to accept Taylor's rejection, so the story of an affair was still a risk. Her letters had been explicitly romantic. Sure enough, the papers eventually caught wind of the story, claiming she and Taylor had been in a relationship. While most of the blame fell on the deceased Taylor for taking advantage of a young girl, the scandal still hurt Mary's movie sales. What was worse, the papers ran article after article insisting that either Mary's nightgown or panties had been found at the crime scene. The story changed daily, but it was an image the public would not let go of. There was no actual piece of clothing in any police record. Mary grew so fed up with the claim that she offered an outrageous $1,000 reward for the supposed garment, worth $14,000 in today's money. No one ever claimed it. While the papers were obsessed with proving Mary Miles Minter had something to do with Taylor's death, the police never took that lead seriously. There was no evidence and no motivation. However, Taylor's other new associate would prove a much stronger lead. Actress and director Mabel Normand. She was his final lover, a hopeless drug addict, and the last person to see him alive. Next, we delve into the life of Mabel Normand, a very likely suspect. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. 
Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. At the time of Taylor's murder, Mabel Normand was just 29, but she was already a veteran star. She had begun acting in 1909 at just 17 years old and had successfully transitioned to directing in the 1910s, just like Taylor. Also like Taylor, Mabel hadn't had an easy life. The film industry was demanding, and Mabel was very insecure about her lack of education. As a result, Mabel had a bad habit of dating older, powerful men to compensate. They usually didn't treat her well, which eventually led her to a drug problem. Mabel met her first ill-fated lover in 1911 when she was barely 19. His name was Mac Sennett, and he was a successful actor 12 years her senior. Nevertheless, the couple became engaged and set a wedding date for 1915. But Mac treated her poorly and openly cheated on her. In fact, just months before the wedding, she received a tip that something was going on with May, a new starlet. Mabel went to check on the girl's dressing room, where she found Mac and May sleeping together. There was a fight, and May hit Mabel in the face with a heavy object. Mabel left, blood streaming down her face, and stayed with friends to recuperate. She called off the engagement shortly after. Mabel went back to work, but she never entirely recovered. Friends and co-workers noticed a major change in her disposition after the incident. She became depressed and prone to bouts of deep melancholy. That's also around the time Mabel started using drugs. Hard drugs. Multiple friends reported seeing her use cocaine or finding her during a crash. The drugs didn't make things easier. In 1918, Mabel miscarried a premature stillborn baby, most likely due to the drugs she was taking. Mabel struggled. She wasn't allowed to talk about what had happened because the film studios and the baby's father, director Sam Goldwyn, were keeping Mabel's problem a secret to protect her career and the marketability of her films. Mabel became determined to get her life on track, even as she was sinking farther and farther into drug use. She tried to improve her self-confidence by hiring a tutor and reading the works of philosophers like Nietzsche and Freud. That was when she met the 47-year-old Taylor, who had just returned from war and had broken off his engagement with Neva Gerber. They were instantly attracted to each other, though Mabel was still dating Sam Goldwyn officially. By this time, Taylor had a vocal obsession with saving people from drug addictions. 
It's not clear if he had felt this way before the war, or if the horrors of combat, combined with the rising number of actors growing addicted to painkillers, triggered this pursuit. Regardless, everyone in the film industry knew where Taylor stood on the issue. That was probably why Mabel famously asked Taylor to help her get clean. Taylor took this request very seriously. In 1919, he arranged for Mabel to attend a recovery hospital in New England. She spent six months resting and recovering from the ravaging effects of the drugs. Mabel was technically still seeing Sam Goldwyn, and when she left him in 1921, her health deteriorated. Friends speculated that to deal with the trauma of the breakup, she had increased her drug use. Taylor had been by her side through the whole ordeal, and now that Mabel had broken things off with Sam, the two started dating officially. But some historians suspect that it was his involvement in trying to help Mabel get clean that got Taylor killed, and that everyone at the studio would have known what really happened. It was common knowledge that Taylor had gotten himself directly involved in chasing drug dealers off set and away from actresses, especially Mabel. Taylor was also known to throw out Mabel's drug supply if he found it on set, and would often stiff drug pushers on their payment. This was no way to endear himself to violent criminals. Friends also reported that Taylor and Mabel quarreled frequently about Mabel's drug problem. As recently as New Year's Eve 1921, just a month before the murder, Mabel was still getting high. Peavy, Taylor's chauffeur, confirmed this. Taylor rang in the new year crying in the back seat of his car after dropping an incoherent, inebriated Mabel back at her home. He loved Mabel, and he couldn't stand watching drugs destroy her. Thus, the dominant theory is that Taylor was murdered by a drug ring for blocking their sales, throwing away their product, and getting the police involved. In fact, two days after Taylor's murder, the assistant United States attorney, Thomas Green, gave a statement confirming that prior to his death, Taylor had been part of an ongoing court case against local drug lords who were targeting actresses like Mabel. But the case had been a slow-going process that left Taylor frustrated. Instead, he tried to take matters into his own hands. It's not entirely clear what Taylor did, but it clearly left the drug ring upset. Green never outright concluded that the drug lords were responsible for Taylor's death, but a few weeks after his statement, the Federal Narcotics Division confirmed the existence of a drug ring in Los Angeles that was one of the largest and most dangerous in the entire world. The mastermind of the drug ring in question, Ralph Euler, had been in Los Angeles at the time of Taylor's murder. The connection has never been definitively proven, but many suspect that Taylor was murdered by Euler or one of Euler's men for obstructing business. Life after Taylor's murder wasn't easy for Mabel. The papers were quick to try and blame her for the murder itself, as she had been the last person to see Taylor alive. Much like Mary Miles Minter, this accusation had no legs to stand on, but it ruined Mabel's reputation and career. 
Without Taylor to help, she returned to drugs, and her health quickly deteriorated. Taylor likely would have been frustrated that his anti-drug efforts had backfired so severely, and that the drug-related aspect of his murder was entirely covered up. It's only the inconsistencies of the case that point us toward the real story today. The first strangeness was, of course, Peavy calling the studio before he called the police, and Eiton arriving to remove incriminating items from Taylor's residence. There was clearly something they didn't want the police to find. Another oddity was the anonymous doctor who had declared death from a hemorrhage, despite the bullet wound in his chest. Bizarrely, the investigators initially accepted this diagnosis, and after he fled the scene, he was never seen again. The next weirdness was how quickly the case was handled. The investigators took statements from many of the people there that day, including Faith McLean, the only person to see the murderer. But Faith's description never ran in the papers, and Faith was not called to testify. In fact, of the 13 people subpoenaed to give information on the murder later that week, only five were actually called to testify. The questioning also only lasted 45 minutes total. In Fatty Arbuckle's case just months before, this process took almost eight hours. All of these oddities point toward one explanation. The studio was working with federal drug investigators to cover up the murder. The likely culprit? William H. Hayes, who was on a mission to protect Hollywood from scandal. Hayes was a former postmaster general for the U.S., as well as a successful lawyer. Hayes left his federal post at an invitation to become president of the New Motion Picture Association of America, or MPAA, in 1922, shortly after Taylor's death. He was paid an incredible $35,000 a year, or around $530,000 today. This was because the studios were having increasing trouble with scandals and public backlash, specifically after the Fatty Arbuckle case in 1921. Studios were also afraid of increasing calls for censorship from more conservative groups and whether this would limit, if not destroy, the film industry. At this time, censorship laws were standardized state to state. Studios had to submit each film to every state censor board and pay for any cuts or edits made. This got expensive. Hayes' job was to clean up public PR for the film industry, as well as help films figure out what would be censored ahead of time so they could create content that would be less likely to be cut and therefore have to pay less to censors. As leaders, conservative and religious voices pushed for censorship. Hayes began developing an in-between code that would limit filmmakers but prevent government interference. A decade in the making, the Motion Picture Production Code was passed in 1930 and was often unofficially called the Hayes Code. The code enforced content standards with a heavy moral overtone. For example, immorality could never be shown in a positive light and had to be punished on screen. Films could also only present 
correct standards of life at the time, which led to the exclusion of strong women, LGBTQ people, poverty, and people of color. The code also banned nudity, sexual behavior, and drug or alcohol use. Exceptions were granted when erring characters were punished on screen. But in 1921, Hayes was just beginning to develop these ideas. The Taylor case would have been one of the first scandals Hayes had to deal with. If it was, in fact, a drug murder, Hollywood had nothing to gain by that information going public, especially because it further compromised any Mabel Normand or William Desmond Taylor productions in the eyes of conservatives. Given that both these figures were highly successful actors and directors, that could have been an enormous amount of protest. On the flip side, an unexplained murder didn't bring any additional negative PR. It's also possible that there was further scandal Hayes was trying to cover up. Taylor was rumored to have been bisexual, have an additional illegitimate child, and have been involved in additional affairs. Shutting the case down prevented any of this information from being spread. It's likely they wanted the Taylor case to disappear. However, it's impossible to know for sure. 100 years later, the case is still unsolved. Taylor was a strange, kind man in a dark, twisted world. He was known to give money out freely, stand up for those who could not stand up for themselves, and treat everyone around him with respect. And yet, this hard-working, eccentric, melancholy man ended up with a bullet in his back. In 1922, that was just a day in the life of a Hollywood superstar. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back with more on the dark side of Hollywood. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Taylor Cleland and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.